Hey, Tangents listeners. This is Jake from Out of Architecture. This week, Sylvia is taking a much-needed break between seasons, and we are excited to have season three starting in the coming weeks. The new season is going to be full of incredible guests from new industries and a wide array of paths beyond traditional architectural practice. But this week, Aaron and I are bringing you something a little bit different. The very first episode of Out of Architecture's new podcast entitled Red Lines. While Tangent celebrates and showcases the many positive trajectories of architecturally trained individuals, Red Lines dives deep into the problems plaguing the architecture profession and the people within it. It's the other side of the journey, one that we rarely hear spoken about openly. Over the years, our community has shared with us thousands of these stories, and we felt it was time that their voices were heard and their stories shared so that others might learn from their experiences. We hope you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, don't forget to jump over and subscribe to Redlines wherever you listen to your podcasts. Enjoy, and we'll see you back here for the start of Season 3 very soon. So I asked my employer, can I have my receipt number so I can go into USCIS system to look up whether or not I got selected this time. And what really surprised me was not only did not disclose this information, they told me that because the visa selection process has changed um, since 2020, there is no longer such a thing as a receipt number. But this contradict with the official statement that USCIS put out on their own website. So this number obviously exists, it's just my employer decided not to disclose it. I thought this was a little fishy. So I looked it up online, I even asked a lawyer if this is legal. So for people who are waiting to go through the H-1B process, if we just don't get the visa, the company doesn't sponsor us, we will expire and we'll have to leave the country on our own for free. This is Redlines by Out of Architecture. The experiences that isolate us in our working world are also the stories that can unite our community and allow us to heal. In this series, we dive deeper into the core issues that plague the design profession and evaluate how they result in everyday conflict, discomfort, and workplace turmoil. We are your hosts, Jake Rudin and Aaron Pellegrino, the founders of Out of Architecture, a career resource network for architects and designers looking to find greater fulfillment in their work and help navigating the many challenges within the profession. Through our work, we've spoken with thousands of individuals, all with unique pathways and experiences. Too often in this work, we encounter stories of struggle, tension, and suffering. Redline seeks to bring a voice to these stories, those privately endured in a school or workplace, but often clouded by shame, self-doubt, and the questioning of one's professional choices. With each episode, we will ask a member of our community to share their story, we'll offer some guidance and advice, and discuss ways to move forward. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names and some identifiable characteristics have been removed or replaced with pseudonyms. Their stories, however, are all too real. In this episode, we speak with Kat, a recent architecture graduate who was studying abroad in the United States and found employment after their degree at a reputable firm. 
that same firm, took advantage of the uncertainty around immigration laws to keep them and their colleagues from having the full picture of their sponsorship status after more than two years of dedicated work for the firm. Kat's story is, unfortunately, one that we commonly hear at Out of Architecture, but with an extra twist that reveals the shadier side of just how often employers take advantage of an employee's trust. I'd love to start with a very simple question. What are you hoping to achieve by sharing your story with us and the community today? Really, I'm just trying to help people, and I can think of two kind of people I can offer help to, which probably encompass the entire audience. One is if you yourself is going through any visa issue or will be applying for a visa anytime soon, things to look out for. And if something goes wrong, what are the alternatives you can take? And for the other group will be people who likely don't have to go through this, but very likely you know someone either your friend or your colleague who is going through this process. And hopefully you can understand their situation better by listening to my story and perhaps even offer help uh, to this person or these people in your life. Erin and I have met many people in this position in the United States over the years. As Americans, we have very little idea of the process for securing a work permit or visa. So we asked Kat to elaborate. So I born and raised in China and came to the U.S. to study in high school because I always knew I wanted to study in the States. So I went to a five-year architecture program at a pretty prestigious and well-known school and graduated right before COVID started. So for every international student, the most common pathway for them to settle in the U.S. is to start with a student visa first, of course. And then after graduating, this visa normally offers one year or three years of OPT, which stand for optional practical training. And note that this is not a pathway to green card. You can only work on this status and there's also another catch is that you can only work in the same specialty as your major. So if you major in architecture, you can't just directly be a programmer straight out of school. And if you're a STEM major, you have three years of OPT. And if you're non-STEM, you have one year. And during or at least at the end of this OPT period, if you want to continue to work and live in the U.S., you have to switch to something else. And the most common one is the H-1B visa, which is uh, commonly known as the work visa. And this is a dual intent visa. So the intent will be you can live here, work here, and also apply to be a permanent resident in the future. However, going through this visa process is a little bit tricky because it has a lottery system. So even if you have a offer at a U.S. employer or potentially have been working for them for a while on your OPT, um, you still have to go through this lottery. And the chance, well, it's hard to say what it is, but it's about one out of five. And recently, because the USCIS has changed 
how the lottery is conducted, so the chance is even lower now. So my story has to do with the trouble that I went through when I was trying to switch to the work visa. You yourself cannot apply for the H-1B visa. Your employer has to sponsor you. So the employer has direct access to all the application information. And as an employee, um, you do not. So oftentimes, which is pretty common um, during the three-year STEM OPT, the companies normally don't sponsor the first year because you are so new. Therefore, it's a similar situation for me as well. So in the first year of COVID, I did not go through the sponsorship process. However, as we probably all know, companies still have to deal with the complication caused by COVID in the following years. So it wasn't necessarily an easier situation for me. So in 2021 and 2022 were the years I entered the visa application process. The process is very opaque. I submit information that my employer asked me about and they hire their own attorney to process the application. And when the lottery draw happens, I don't have any means to look up the results by myself. Everyone who needed sponsorship in these years will have to wait for the employer to tell them whether or not they were selected, which is not necessarily always the case. My employer chose not to share something called a receipt number. And with the receipt number, you are able to, with your name and other kind of crucial information, you can look up uh, whether or not you're selected in the process. But my employer decided not to provide us with this information, which is actually the main point of the conflict in my story. Students come to the U.S. to study architecture at great expense, away from their families, some in the hopes that this can lead to a future in the United States. The impact of going through this process and not being selected is far-reaching. These students choose where they study to give them the best chance possible of being sponsored to live, work, and build a life in the U.S. So not being able to fully see behind the curtain, not being able to understand the process of the selection, let alone having visibility to the results directly is extremely impactful. Not every architecture company sponsor foreign workers. So there are only really a handful of companies who are really known for being good at sponsoring people. You know, the well-known names, the big companies. So I went with one of them. And at first I was very happy because the starting salary was great and I feel like I will get a lot of connections and experience working at a worldwide well-known company. I didn't realize there was anything wrong with it at first um, because it's very common for your first year to be not included in the lottery draw um, because, you know, your first year there, you're so new. So it's kind of reasonable, uh, consider a norm in the industry at least, to start to be sponsored uh, or start to be entered into the lottery 
from your second year on. So that's what happened with me. So the second year came, came around, it was my first lottery draw. And because the visa application is submitted by your employer and not the employee themselves, I did not have much information about how that process actually went. So the only way I found out whether or not I was selected was to wait for HR to tell me the news. And it was bad news. At the time, I really trusted the company because I know in the past I have friends uh, or acquaintances who told me that this company is really good at sponsoring their employees and they're really willing to put in the money and time for it. I didn't think much of it until that year because 2020 was a very complicated year for everyone. Not everybody who got selected in the process actually decided to go with the H-1B visa. So there were leftover spots that can be taken. So there were a second and a third lottery draw towards the end of that year. That is when I start to think about, oh, maybe I could look it up myself because uh, USCIS did announce it officially on their website that the second and third lottery draws uh, were happening. So this number obviously exists. It's just my employer decided not to disclose it. I thought this was a little fishy. So I looked it up online. I even asked a lawyer if this is legal. And it turned out, unfortunately, that it is legal in the U.S. for employers to hide this information from their employees because technically the applicant is the employer, not the employee themselves. So with that suspicion, I was thinking about whether or not I should change a company, I should change my job, a jump ship before the, my third year on OPT, um, which is the last chance and the second chance I can get a lottery draw. But I decided not to because my company did not fire anyone or did not lay off anyone until that point. And I thought it was very precious because a lot of similar sized companies, similar scaled company who were also willing to sponsor actually did lay off a lot of their staff. So at the time, I still have some hope for the company. Maybe they have their own reasons to not disclose uh, the receipt number. And I felt like at the time, I did not have a better employer to go to because I do, don't want to be laid off either. So comes the third year, same thing happens. My employer, again, did not want to provide us with receipt number. I say us, it's because it's not just me who experienced this. There are my peers who were at the same level as me, junior architects, who also went to the HR asking for the same information and got the same answer. And I have emails, communication with HR, asking about information regarding my application. And what they said in the email does not adhere to what USCIS has put out in their statement. This is a critical point. They had already been through a second draw, a third draw, gone to HR, and then they refused to give them the identifying number. This, as you can imagine, raised a lot of suspicion. At this point, they are already two years into a small three-year window. They've decided not to find another job, 
and stay where they are. So they go back to HR a second time. I guess fast forward a little bit. When I was leaving this company, I tried to download this chain of email that has all of the inquiries I made about the visa process. And HR has deleted one email in which they practically lied about the receipt number's existence. Luckily, I did actually ended up getting a version of this paper trail that has all of the email, but I can confirm that it was deleted from the system. So the HR is aware that they were not being truthful when they answered people, when they asked for the receipt number. And HR suggested that since I did not get selected in the lottery, I can go ahead and apply for all one visa, which is a visa you can apply for yourself, but the expense of it has to be shouldered by the employee. Or I can apply for a part-time master program. And then on the master program, uh, as a student, again, you're allowed to basically work as an intern. And this is called CPT curricular practical training. However, this also comes with a cost that the employee have to shoulder themselves uh, because you do have to pay tuition for this program and the employer um, is not going to pay for it. And um, both of these options require a lot of time commitment because to apply for all one visa, you have to do a lot of extracurricular. And I have heard people comparing that to basically getting another degree, like getting a master program on at the same time working full-time at an architecture company. So really the workload and the, the cost to me personally is not really worth it because I was in New York City. I wanted to live life. I was doing all kind of very interesting extracurricular that I want to do for me not for immigration. So I decided not to go with these two options that HR proposed. What do you think was really going on behind the scenes? Obviously, there is no concrete proof because without HR leaving any evidence uh, in exactly what they're doing with these applications, there is no way for me to pinpoint that's really what happened. But there are enough evidence laying around that I can draw this conclusion. And one is that COVID is difficult financially for all of the companies. And for my previous employer specifically, they have a really big chunk of their work in the China market. And as probably some of you know, China with this lockdown was relatively successful actually towards the beginning of the COVID saga. Therefore, the market there was not really influenced. That is why my company did not lay off anyone for the first two years of COVID. And really, it's the third year, like 2022, is the year when the China market really went down and it really slowed down and we weren't getting paid for our project on time. So that is when, 2022, was when 
my company laid off uh, some of its employee. Now it's not a very big percentage, perhaps about ten to fifteen percent, but we can tell that the company was having financial issues, and sponsoring H one B visas are relatively expensive. I did some research on this, so the cost of it on the lower end is about seventeen hundred, and the high end really not not sure, but could be up to eight thousands or even more. Depend on what kind of lawyers your company hires for this process, and let's say it's about five thousand dollars per person on average. So this is a cost. If the company want to sponsor, they have to pay. Now, if a person was not selected in the lottery process, then of course the company is off the hook. But if the person is selected and decide to go ahead with the H one B application. That is when the company has to pay this cost. So by telling us we are not selected in the process, even if we actually are, because we don't know what actually happened, right? It's possible the employee, the employer actually did put us in the lottery, and some of us were selected, and the employer actively decided not to let us know so that they don't have to pay for this cost down the line. This is really what I think happened. The layoff is the company trying to shed its weight, try to shed its、um, responsibility to pay salary for this number of people. It can further cut their costs if some of the employee can just leave on their own, meaning the company doesn't have to pay severance. So for people who are waiting to go through the H-1B process, if we just don't get the visa, the company doesn't sponsor us. We will expire, and we'll have to leave the country on our own for free. So this is potentially another consideration why HR decided to hide any identifying information about the application. Do you think that this situation was unique to you within the company, or do you think it was one of many? I believe it's one of many, because my peers and myself are pretty transparent about this with each other. So we would talk to each other when we hear about the lottery results. I will also talk to each other about what HR said to them. And it turned out to be very similar. So actually, all of the people my level, which are entry level, did not get selected until、uh, unless they are some kind of specialty worker who are specialized in something, or people, of course, who are of higher level that actually got scouted somewhere else. They got the sponsorship. So people who did not get selected,、uh, quote unquote, are people of my level, are people of my position. First of all, I want to say thank you for sharing and for educating us on so many of the different facets of of what it's like going through the various visa processes. I also want to ask a question with the context that you've provided, which, as I understand it, is. You're coming out of school, a very reputable one. 
you are a talented young professional. You're already a little bit throttled in the sense of the different places you feel like you can apply to that would support you in this endeavor. The way the visa dynamics occur is that it sets up a power dynamic that is really unfortunate that sits on top of the already existing power dynamics in a lot of of architecture firms. It seems like from your story and also from your discussions with your colleagues that there is almost a potential kind of pattern of exploitation with essentially this idea of dangling the the carrot of support for your visa over your head. I can also imagine being in a scenario where if they're willing to offer visa support, you won't maybe ask for a higher initial wage or maybe relocation. Did this come up in discussions around things like compensation or the job negotiation as a whole? I did ask about whether or not the company planned to sponsor me. And the answer was yes. And that's one of the big reasons I went with this company. And at the time, I was actually really surprised by the salary that I was offered for a fresh out of school entry level architect. So I actually don't have a counter offer that's higher than that. However, we all know that when you're a salary staff, you don't make any extra income for overtime. So oftentimes, depend on the project you're on, it's kind of depend on your luck. You could be placed on the decent project with good work-life balance, but oftentimes it's not. Uh, working one or two hour overtime every day is very common. And of course, that's unpaid, sometimes even working on the weekends. What I observed, which I also felt myself as well, is the hesitancy to say no when we were asked to do overtime or be placed on a project that has very unreasonable timeline. Because we're all worried about that, that would be a reason our company will lay off us or decide not to sponsor us. So it is a little bit scary to say no to your employer, even though in retrospect, you could be thinking that just catastrophizing, like there's no way your employer just going to fire you because you say no to overtime on the weekend. But when I was actually in the situation myself, especially the first year I was working there, I was really trying to be good and uh, be noticed by the company. So I didn't say no to any of this kind of request. And it is also pretty common. And it's not just myself who noticed it. In the company-wide survey, actually, a lot of people anonymously raised this problem, is that a lot of Asian workers, and my company had a very high percentage of Asians, we were placed on oftentimes competitions or projects in China that have really fast-paced timeline. We are not exactly sure why that happens. Maybe it is the language if a worker is from China, and the project is in China, and it will be convenient uh, if there's no language barrier, obviously. However, my personal experience is that language is not always very important in working in an Asian project. Oftentimes, they just want people who are willing to do the work for that intensity. And people who are waiting for the company to sponsor them are less likely to say no to this kind of arrangement. And in a way, to be fair, 
I can understand why company would do that just from a cold-blooded like company point of view. Because if, for example, let's just talk about placing people on competitions. If you place an American on a competition, they might leave, and you'll have to re- find this resource somewhere else. So the, I could imagine the company being worried about. Such workload driving people who can leave away from the company, and I also understand that the company can't sponsor everyone. And I we imagine, I hope that every employer, if they can, want to keep all the employees that they deem sufficient, that that they deem valuable. However, given the system in the U.S., companies are facing a choice. In which, if they want to do well, they will have to sometimes hurt the benefit of migrant workers. Even though I am on the other side of it, I can see how the U.S. immigration system and the visa application process is pushing company to make decisions like my former employers. In a way, I feel like it's more the U.S. government and its system. That's that's putting people like me through the visa dilemma, and not actually fully the company's responsibility or fully their choice. So people who are willing to do the work because they can't say no. Your ability to stay in the country, your ability to stay employed in a place where you've begun to build a life, can essentially be taken from you. Yes. And being laid off has pretty serious consequences. Or actually, just leaving the job on your own has the same consequence. If you are on H-1B, you have 60 days to either find and start your next job or leave the country. And for OPT, it depends. It varies from 60 to 90 days. But two or three months to find another job started. It is pretty difficult. Especially at the time when companies are struggling with COVID complications. Yep. So if you do get laid off or you decide to leave a company, you have to move out of the place that you have been living for potentially years. It is a pretty hard choice if anybody decide to leave on their own, and oftentimes we don't because you have to start your life over. I would like to add that there is another factor. In especially H1B, in that switching company also cost employer、uh, a similar amount of money. So while you're on H1B, if you would like to switch, your new employer will also have to be willing to stomach this cost. So there is that actually limit on how many company you can realistically change to during your time on H1B, which is also inconvenient. And although OPT does not have this kind of cost implication, there is a time implication because all employers want somebody they first hire to be on OPT for as long as they can, so they can put off paying for the cost of H one B. So if you have already say worked two years on OPT, when you interview for your next company, they you will have to say. In one year, I will need sponsorship, and this will make you a lot less attractive in the hiring manager's eyes. 
So you went through this saga, you've applied, you've worked at the company for three years. And over the course of that time, you would have expected at least two applications to go through. By the time you get this letter from HR telling you that this numeric receipt doesn't exist, which it absolutely does. So as all of this is occurring, your time is running out. I'm curious to hear about what that felt like, but then also what your ultimate decision was and what this position that this forced you into. Honestly, even though I was sad not to get the H-1B visa, I was a little bit happy that I get a chance to really rethink about whether or not I want to continue staying in the States because a very common path for people to go through, especially in the architecture industry, I say that is because certain industry like finance are more willing to sponsor for H-1B early on in the process uh, and then start the green car path earlier on in the process. But for architecture company, they try to milk the benefit of having someone being in this unstable state for as long as they can, per my understanding. So after three years of OPT, people can be put on H-1B visa for six years. It's three years for each visa and you could renew it twice. And then after that, the company will start to enter people into the green card queue. And as for the green card, depending on where you're from, it can be either really quick, less than two years, or for people from really populated countries like China and India, this process can, can take more than 10 years. And the later you enter this queue, the longer the wait is going to be. So it's a really lengthy process. So in my case, if even if I successfully get the sponsorship, it will take me about 20 years from graduating to getting my green card. And to me, this is just 20 years of just constantly being nervous and stressed about my job and worried about my performance. And to be honest, worried about the entire economy, because if there's another downturn anytime in this period, I could lose my job and it doesn't even have anything to do with myself. So I just feel like the U.S. immigration system in and of itself is not a process I want to go through. And I actually would like to compare it to indentured servitude. I understand that it's not the same as what the Irish people went through, but to me, it really felt like a modern version of it. And I do not want to sign up for that. Listening now, you realize that because of the antiquated and bureaucratic American visa system, not only do people feel like they are in indentured servitude, which no one should feel like, let alone in the US in 2023, but the country is losing skilled workers, many of whom provide immense value into the architectural and design community. So I decided that I'm going to seek residency elsewhere. And uh, I looked into many countries actually who have better program than the US. Uh, for example, Canada has express entry, the EE has, for a Canadian permanent residency. The UK came out with a visa called HPI, High Potential Individual. If you graduate from the top 50 university in the world outside of the UK within and the, 
apply for the visa within five years of graduation. You can live, work, or do whatever you want, actually, whatever pleases you for two to three years. Germany, Portugal are all countries that are very welcoming of immigrants, especially skilled immigrants like architects. And all of these countries, the, one of the benefit of going with programs like this is that your job do not have to be in the same field as your major. So for people that are seeking to potentially try another kind of career path outside of architecture, this is very valuable. For people who are going through the same dilemma as I did, or who are about to go into it, I think I have a few um, suggestions I can make. The first one is when you accept an offer, try to get your employer to promise for a written agreement that outlines what kind of transparency you'll be getting for your visa process. And if they don't agree, you already know from the start at the interview that this company is shady. Then while you are in the LPT period, keep in touch with companies that you worked for before you interned before and just keep looking for other opportunities. Just in case, if you get laid off in this 60 or 90 day period, you can secure yourself another position soon enough. And of course, at the same time, I do encourage you to look up alternatives outside of the States. Do not be like me, who blindly placed my faith in my ex-employer. And do share information with your peers. For me personally, that was very helpful because without talking to people who are in the same company, in the same situation, I will have not find out or be aware of what happened to myself, which will be even more frustrating. If you do still decide to go ahead with working in the U.S. and potentially put up with a complicated experience with the H-1B or any other visa application process, do know that you shouldn't be coming to the U.S. or staying in the U.S. just for a green card. Only stay and work here after you graduate if you feel like there are other things you can get out of this experience. So that even if you, at the end, have to leave the country like I do, you still get something out of it. So it's not a 100% lose-lose situation for you. And the point really is for migrant worker like myself to not feel like a victim. You can choose your path. You can decide where you go. When you open your mind like that, you, when you open your mind to opportunities beyond H-1B, there are so many alternatives that you can go with. And I think that is a really hopeful idea to have in your mind uh, when you're in this stressful situation. And for people who are not going through this process or for people who don't have to go through this process, such as American workers, or people who can easily immigrate to the U.S. I hope this podcast was helpful in educating yourself on what your peers are potentially going through and even maybe offer support 
to your peers and just gain political awareness about what is going on in your country, how it's your government is really treating people who are legal immigrants. Because I feel like a lot of the discourse politically is about illegal immigrants, but legal migrants also is not all um, like smiles and rainbows for us. Um, it is also very stressful. So I'm just hoping to draw uh, attention to this aspect of politics. It's great that your story does have a positive and a, and a happy ending and that you've ended up where you feel comfortable and secure and, and happy and welcome, right? I think forget as an architect or as the co-founder here at Out of Architecture, I think just as an American, I would like to apologize just for what seems to be a, a really difficult system in our profession, which is already a difficult profession to enter. And I'm just so sorry that you've gone through that. Thank you for feeling sorry. It's very nice to hear. But I did feel like I got what I needed out of the three-year experience on OPT. I got licensed in the U.S., and I was taking acting classes in New York, uh, which is the center of like Broadway and off-Broadway theater. I feel like I had enough both professional and personal growth in this three years, and I felt ready to move to another place. So there's still a chance I'd go back, who knows, but at least to visit. And there's something funny I was thinking like, oh, okay. I feel like what I'm talking about is out of America. Kat, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this episode of Redlines. It's been very powerful listening to your story. And I think that it's a beautiful summary that you've just presented to allow us to share and, and, and impact not only people who may go through this exact experience, but who also might see this out there in the architectural workplace and might have a better understanding of, of what their colleagues and peers are going through. So thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of Redlines, subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Don't forget to check out the show notes for relevant links, resources, and other information related to today's story that we hope will help you in your own journey. If you want to hear more of these stories, consider supporting us as an Out of Architecture Patreon subscriber, where you'll have access to exclusive Out of Architecture content, our private community, and more. And if you or someone you know has a story that you'd like to hear on an episode of Redlines, please send us an email with a summary at redlines at outofarchitecture.com. Thanks for listening.